With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so today we are bringing back uh, a, a very old friend of mine. He's not very old. Um, in fact, some people accuse him of being ageless, uh, but I've known him for a very, very long time. Former colleague of mine at, at National Review, current and enduring colleague of mine at uh, the American Enterprise Institute, and soon to be the new editor of National Review Magazine, Ramesh Panuru. Ramesh, welcome back to The Remnant. Glad to remain here with you. <laughs> um, so I uh, mean, I don't want to get you crosswise with your grandiose plans and whatnot, but um, have you drawn up your lists of purges yet? You know, like, you know, are you going to, are you going to pick one person and just punish them on, the fact that it'll be clarifying for everybody else. I mean, uh, do you have grandiose plans for, for your, your uh, stewardship of the, the grand old mag? We're going to try to recapitulate Bill Buckley's entire career. We're going to purge first the Randians and then the Birchers, and then we'll see who's left. I think that's an excellent plan. Um, and, and you have to define Randians and Birchers as broadly as possible to allow for the purges. Um, and, uh, and, and feel free to, punish jack butler as as you see fit um so uh, one reason i want to have you on here is that everyone's talking about abortion stuff and i talked a little bit about this with david french in the last podcast but or in a recent podcast um and it seems to me um preparing both proponents and opponents of repealing roe v wade uh for the possibility that it actually happened in some meaningful way uh, seems to be like a a good exercise in in basic civics because there's going to be as we've seen with this Texas SB8 thing there's been so much hysteria over that um, and I suspect a little of that is working the refs um, for the Mississippi case um, that explain to people that it's while it's a big deal it's not the big deal that they necessarily think it is. Um, seems worthwhile. And then I have some rank punditry questions about these various things. And so anyway, uh, for listeners who haven't read it, about a couple issues ago of National Review, Ramesh did the best sort of omnibus, um, here's what's going on with Roe, here's why it should go, uh, piece that I've read in a very long time, maybe ever, um, and we'll put it in the show notes. But um, figured we would just sort of start there. And so why don't you just like lay out... Um, where we are vis-a-vis the status of Roe and Casey and all that stuff and 
and where you think things are going. And then I'll pick up threads as I see them. Right. So the uh, famous or infamous Texas law uh, is uh, obviously incompatible with what the Supreme Court has said in the past about abortion in the Constitution. Um, so it's incompatible with Roe v. Wade, and it's incompatible with KCV Planned Parenthood, the 1992 case that reaffirmed Roe. And um, people are acting as though Roe has been uh, reversed, or at least reversed with respect to Texas, because the Supreme Court has allowed this law to go into effect. Um, but that really has to do with the peculiarities of the structure of this law and the litigation surrounding it. The, the law was designed so that it couldn't be struck down quite as fast as anti-abortion laws typically are. Um, that's It was because of the desire to get around that kind of pre-enforcement nullification that it was written in this way that everybody's talked about, where it's not actually enforced directly by the government, but instead private citizens can enforce it in civil court. But the fact that it was allowed to go into effect, because you, it's not like you can tell the governor, don't implement this, because there's nothing really the governor does under the law, doesn't mean that it can't be struck down when it is actually put into effect. So if somebody goes, uh, and tries to sue under this law, um, you know, if the courts uh, are going to continue to apply Roe and Casey, which the lower courts are bound to do until the Supreme Court says otherwise, um, then I think that this is going to get tossed, or at least it's just not going to be enforced because it's not enforceable. The question, though, is the, the more important question is whether Roe and Casey are going to stay on the books or whether the Supreme Court's going to get rid of them or at least modify them. And that really depends on another law and litigation over that law, and that's the Mississippi case that the Supreme Court's already agreed to take, which is a ban on abortion after the 15th week of gestation. Um, that is uh, a kind of, it's clever in a different way than the Texas law, um, what I think is interesting about it is it's something that generally has pretty high support because most people um, will say that abortion should be banned after the first trimester. Even a lot of people who think that abortion should be allowed in the first three months say that you should prohibit it after that point. Well, that's what this case, what this law in Mississippi does. Um, it takes, um, I believe, if I remember correctly from from the research I did in the, the article, something like few, less than 5% of all abortions in the U.S. take place after that, I think even smaller percentage in Mississippi. So it's on its face a kind of moderate popular law, but it totally contradicts Roe and Casey. Uh, you, there, there, you really can't sustain this law and, and say you're sticking with Roe and Casey with a straight face. Now, that doesn't mean that some justices might not try to come up with some sort of uh, if, if, if no offense is is, uh, is uh, taken here, Rube Goldbergian, I know is your cousin, <laughs> um, kind of scheme for sort of saying, well, we can have Roe and we can have this law at the same time. But it's on its face, it's just a flat contradiction. And you either have to strike down this Mississippi law or you have to overturn Roe and Casey. Okay, so um, some clarity on this, because you're actually the guy I often go to to 
save time on on these polling questions. Um, do I have a, is this a fair way to characterize it that Roe is generally popular, but when uh, upholding Roe is generally popular, but when you explain to people what Roe actually does, a lot of the things that Roe actually does are unpopular. And the, and as you say, like the, the, the position of most Americans is actually much like Europeans, right? It's, it's that they're generally in favor of abortion rights. Um, first trimester, some regulation, second trimester, um, and then pretty much banning it third trimester with some exceptions for health and of the mother and that kind of thing. Um, but they don't realize that you can't do that while Roe is the well, Roe and Doe and Casey, but let's just call that regime Roe. Um, while that's in effect, those kinds of regulations are not possible. So the, one of the reasons why the polling is always so murky is that people read the question, are you in favor of, do you think Roe should be overturned? Is They think that means all abortions should be banned and they don't want to say that. Is that a fair approximation of where the public polling is? Yeah, I think that, I think that is right. Um, uh, it's true that the polling um, gives you uh, some answers that appear to conflict with one another, um, but there are definitely some patterns in the polling. And one of them, it has always been my hunch that the reason why there's, there are these pretty large majorities in favor of Roe v. Wade, um, pretty large majorities that t typically will answer pollster questions by saying, um, we don't want it overturned. Those numbers are very, very close to the numbers that you get when you ask something like, should, should abortion be banned? Um, you know, should abortion be banned throughout the first trimester? Um, so much so that made my hunch has always been that people read them as equivalent questions, even though they're not legally. Right. And in fact, there were, uh, I just, there was a study a couple of years ago that I just recently came across, which actually found that about two thirds of the public believes that overturning Roe v. Wade means in a kind of direct and immediate way, prohibiting all abortions. Um, and so it's only a minority of Americans who actually understand what Roe v. Wade even means. Now, there are other there's other ambiguity in the polling as well. Um, I think this is not a topic that that most people like thinking about, um, and and don't really want to uh, engage on. Um, in and that's something that sort of, um, in, in a way, kind of helps both sides of the debate or hurts both sides of the debate. Um, I think it reflects the underlying. Um, uh, in a kind of underlying near pro-life sentiment, right? Because people don't have that kind of reaction uh, about um, uh, appendectomies. Um, right. But uh, so there are a lot of reasons for this kind of uh, divergence and polling question. I mean, you had said um, that most people are sort of pro-choice, but favor some restrictions. But if you ask people, you know, should abortion be banned uh, in all cases, banned with exceptions for rape, life, incest, um, allowed in all cases. Um, if you structure a poll in that way, it's pretty frequently the case that ma a majority of the public will say, uh, ban it altogether or ban it with the rape, life, incest exceptions, which are rare exceptions, as, um, as, uh, as you know. 
Um, and so, you know, it's, it, it makes more sense in, if you're looking at that set of polls to say there's a pro-life majority mm-hmm. uh, and people mm-hmm. are pro-life with exceptions rather than being pro-choice with restrictions. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, but I, but I myself never say there's a pro-life majority or there's a pro-choice majority. I just don't think that that's, that's the truest way of describing the ambivalence that there is in, among a lot of people in, the, in this country. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, my old boss, Ben Wattenberg, I never really liked this formulation, but he always used to say, it's murder and I'm for it, which at the very least has the benefit of capturing some of the the contradictions in how people think about this stuff. Um, And I got to say, you know, Bill Clinton, the safe, legal and rare thing as just a matter of messaging was about as brilliant as you're going to get or as, as about as close as to what a Democrat could ever possibly say at the very least, um, and still be in concert with the, with public opinion. So just since we're in the abortion one oh one phase of this, um, we should just be clear that if you get rid of, if you overturn Roe and Doe and all of that, you do not in fact ban abortion in this country. It, there are some States that have trigger laws. Maybe you know how many that say abortion will be banned if, if they overturn it. But for the most part, in the place, let's put it this way, in the places where the most people care about preserving abortion rights, they will not see their abortion rights go away because New York and California and Washington State, um, those kinds of places are going to have immediately put in place if they don't, you know, or, 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 I'm sure they do already, but no one is going to then move bills to to ban abortion in those places it just gets sent back to the states right right um congress could in principle pass an abortion law in either direction right they could they could ban abortion or they could pass a law saying that all states have to allow abortion and no state can prohibit it which is something that nancy pelosi is talking about doing um those would face some legal challenges but i think more important they just they, they can't pass you right. can't overcome uh, a filibuster to get to get either of those things done. Um, you, I mean, Republicans have tried to ban abortion after 20 weeks, and that hasn't even been able to overcome a filibuster. So I think given that it is, practically speaking, a state-by-state question, and the most pro-choice states, the most pro-abortion states are going to retain abortion. I mean, they've in some cases, they've already passed laws in case Roe um, were to be taken off the books that clarify that uh, that abortion is going to be um, allowed through, throughout pregnancy and in some cases will also be taxpayer funded. So, I mean, just uh, in terms of the history, the political history of this, um, until, what, 1994, Democrats controlled Congress continuously for 40-odd years. Um, they certainly controlled it since Roe was passed. Um, why didn't Congress? And I mean, I I know there used to be a lot more pro-life Democrats and a lot more pro-choice Republicans and all that. But why didn't Congress ever just pass an abortion law, one, clarifying things one way or the other after 1973? So there were some attempts to do that. Um, it was they were you know, largely initiated by the pro-life side. Uh, and it was just impossible to 
reach any kind of consensus. Um, it certainly was an important part of that, that there were dozens of pro-life Democrats. Um, as late as the early 90s, there were about 100 Democrats who would often vote with pro-lifers on legislation. And pro-lifers did manage to uh, get a bipartisan success in the uh, just a couple of years after Roe came down, which was to deny Medicaid funding for right. elective abortions. That policy has been in place since 1976, the Hyde Amendment. Um, and uh, and it's really only recent. Well, I should say Clinton tr- took a run at that and, and weakened it a little bit in '93. Uh, um, and now the Democrats are are pretty uniformly against it. So we'll see if that survives. So you've been part of the intellectual pro-life world for a really long time. And, um, and one of the points you make in your piece is that the national right to life committee, which was one of the first thing, one of the first organizations to come out of the post row in the, you know, after the row decision. And you have some ambiguity about how it's, it is their leader. It is no longer their leader. It was once there. I could, I, I was reading it fast. Um, but, um, they've adopted, as you put it, an incrementalist approach and they're not even asking to have the court throw out row. Can you, can you explain why that would be the case? Cause that would, that comes as a bit of, it came as a surprise to me. And my assumption is that the people who actually caricature, um, pro-lifers, they would just assume that that's not the case. So what w- what is the thinking behind not backing Dobbs to the hilt and being all in on overturning Roe for a group that was founded essentially to overturn Roe? Right, Dobbs being the the Mississippi case. Right. Um so I, I think there were there were conservative and pro-life um lawyers and legal thinkers who were nervous about this challenge to Rowan Casey and thought it might be asking too much to uh, uh, to actually overturn Rowan Casey as opposed to chipping away at them, weakening them, and um, getting ready for some later case where maybe you, you could overrule Rowan Casey more cleanly. Um, and the, I, the the basic fear there is that maybe Chief Justice Roberts or Justice Kavanaugh. Um, it, those are the two who are most often mentioned, but also maybe some of the others are not ready to take that step, uh, and and it would backfire to to try to push them to do it. Um, for one thing, you don't want um, to get another reaffirmation of Roe um, that is more recent. Um, I think that while there are times when incrementalism is the correct strategy. Uh, I think, for example, that it was very useful for conservatives 15 and 20 years ago to push the law that banned partial birth abortion. Um, that was a kind of little by little step to educate people about the radicalism of current law, the extremism of the of the pro-abortion movement, um, and you know, incremental things like getting rid of taxpayer funding where it's uh, around and thus reducing the number of abortions. That's very much worth doing. In this case, I just think that it is, it is a mistaken strategy. Um, it's mistaken because we're, we may not have as um, propitious uh, a legal climate um, or as a lineup of Supreme Court justices as we currently have. 
And then there's just the there's just the problem of this lie is in fact in front of the Supreme Court, and um, it's very hard to figure out a way you can uphold a 15 week ban without just getting rid of Roe and Casey. Um, if you and what I think you don't want to do is uh, is is have the justices come up with some new. Well, we'll get rid of Roe and Casey, but we'll create a new abortion right that just lasts until week fifteen. Uh, and you know, I mean, if you do that, I don't see how any how the same people who came up with this new legal standard will then vote to get rid of it in three years and say, well, actually, you know, uh, we're not going to do that either. We're just going to let legislatures govern. I think that's the, that is the correct constitutional outcome: let legislatures govern. govern. The, the Constitution does not give the courts uh, a role to play here in terms of vetoing abortion legislation. And so we ought to reach that destination. It's uh, Roe v. Wade, you know, obviously I think it's, it's responsible for, for monstrous injustice being a pro-lifer, but it's also just so thoroughly warped our politics uh, and um, warped our judicial politics in particular um, let's, let's be done with it. Um, all right. So that, that, that moves us into the next phase, um, sort of the abortion 201 class. Um, so let's turn the clock back for want of a better term. Um, let's say that the Supreme court in 1973, um, hadn't done what it did didn't mint this new right that doesn't that can't be found in the constitution um and instead came up with some sort of much more practical moderate thing that said okay here are some limitations on what you can do but basically this is a state issue let the states um deal with all this would the pro-life movement have come into existence would it would it be a thing yeah, it's it's uh, it's really hard to know um, or to speak with any degree of confidence on on uh, what would have happened. Um, I think that there would have been a pro life movement, but it would have been smaller. Um, you would have had less polarization, and in particular, uh, the alignment of the political parties um, would not have been right in line with the division over abortion. Um, you would, my, I would think you'd probably have a more socially conservative uh, Democratic Party, uh, and probably a more successful and larger Democratic Party, um, and you'd have a more socially liberal and probably smaller Republican Party um, if you hadn't had that kind of abortion-induced uh, realignment of American politics. It's, do, I, do I have the political chronology of this right in, insofar as originally the pro-life movement was largely a Catholic thing, and then in part because of the perceived disappointment, betrayal, whatever, of the Carter administration and Carter-era Democrats that you know people like uh, Falwell and, those, and that crowd of the uh, sort of the Protestant crowd that were still, I believe, still nominally Democrats back then, they, they, they picked up the abortion cause and moved into the Republican party because, in, not entirely because of the abortion cause, but in no small part because of it. 
Yeah, so um, one of the oddities of this is that the core constituencies of the pro-life movement were ancestrally Democrats. Right? Mm-hmm. The Republican Party was the party that had the historical ties to Planned Parenthood. And the, po- the party of urban Catholics and Southern evangelicals was the Democratic Party. Um, and as late as the late 80s, um, Democratic voters were a, a little bit more pro-life than Republican voters were. Um, although at the elite level, that, that very, very quickly um, flipped to it to something like the modern situation. Uh, we're already by the late 70s, Democrats in Congress were voting more pro-choice and Republicans were voting more pro-life. So the, the politics is, is a little bit tangled. It, it was originally Catholics who were most um, uh, alarmed by the spread of abortion on demand in this country. And evangelicals, um, everybody cites the work of, of uh, Francis Schaeffer um, in, in getting um, evangelicals to awaken to the, the, the injustice of abortion. Because I, I think to some degree it was just seen as some weird Catholic hang-up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of evangelicals had to sort of overcome that, um, that stumbling block uh, in order to um, come around on, on that issue. But by the early 1980s, you had uh, kind of Catholic, evangelical, conservative alliance. Of course, not everybody who's pro-life falls into one of those categories, but they, those were and are um, the bulk of the pro-life movement. And then sort of over time, this kind of reinforced itself where um, people who were uh, pro-life or were sort of socially part of pro-life communities um, found themselves less and less having a place in the Democratic Party, and vice versa for um, for pro-choicers. I mean, the, the way I, I always try to describe this is that it, like, if you are a regular mass-going Catholic who has some doubts about whether abortion should be banned, um, you're, you know, you might not think of yourself as an abortion-based voter, but fundamentally it's what underlies why you're not voting for Democrats. And similarly, if you are uh, a reformed Jew who has qualms about um, unlimited abortion, um, you are still likely to vote for the Democratic Party, partly because sort of your affinity group has just aligned that way um, largely, although of course not entirely uh, based on this issue, which is why I think this has had such a huge political effect on the alignments of our parties, even though election after election, it's only a minority of voters who say it's one of their top issues. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a cultural signifier that has a, sort of an amplifying effect on other things. I mean, I think that's right. So I, yeah. So it's, it's so, a fault line, right? And fault lines are underground. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I, I want to get to some of sort of the metaphysical moral stuff in a second, but let's maybe the best way to get there is through the politics of it. So stipulating that a big, not the only, but a big driver of the, of the big sort of the two parties as being ideological parties, um, um, you know, and the Republican party, I, I would argue was the, was the first to go as, as an ideological, to go ideological, basically with Reagan. Um, but 
prior to Reagan, both parties were, were still largely coalitional, regional-based parties um, with, you know, a, key, a few core issues, but for the most part, um, uh, on cultural issues, if I asked, if I, let's put it this way, if I asked you if you were a liberal or a conservative, I would ask that, I would have to ask a follow-up question to follow, find out whether you were a Republican or a Democrat prior to, say, 1982 or something like that, and or you know, you know what I mean? So the, if, if they're that instrumental in the self-conception of the two parties and their organizational structure and their fundraising structure and their, and, and the way they message things, I think you're on record. You were for getting rid of Roe, you were pro-life regardless of the political consequences, <laughs> but what are the political consequences? Like what happens to the two parties if all of a sudden it is sent back to the States and, um, you have, uh, this, this, this issue that is not only galvanizing, but has like become, has created a political identity that did not exist to the extent mm -hmm. it did when Roe was issued in the first place. So I think that the question you just asked has a kind of conventional answer, um, a pretty widespread answer that is that I do not agree with, but it's not crazy. Uh, and that is that that pro-life Republicans become, you know, like the dog that caught the car. Uh, and um, when they if they actually have the freedom to legislate on this issue uh, and and then attempt to legislate on this issue, there will be a huge backlash uh, and um, and, the, you know, Republicans will be mortally wounded, the pro-life movement will be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and um, look, there's some reason for thinking that could happen. There are certainly a lot of questions on which pro-lifers are out of step with uh, majority sentiment. It's certainly possible that a lot of pro-lifers in a lot of places are going to overreach. But uh, I also think that um, there is a ton of ground to be gained on policy by pro-lifers. And so whether, you know, maybe there's an immediate attempt um, to go too far, um, I don't think that means that, you know, if, if there is a, a backlash or a short-term backlash, that doesn't mean I think that pro-lifers disappear. I think that they've shown pretty strong staying power. And they'll come back in a few years and, you know, maybe in uh, – uh, particular states, they can't get a ban on abortion, even with exceptions for, for rape, incest, life of the mother, but maybe they can get that 20-week ban. Um, and it can actually be, once the, court, the Supreme Court has gotten out of the way, that ban can be enforced in a way that it can't currently be. Um, one other long-term consequence that I think you would have is a, uh, a political depolarization on this issue where it becomes more possible for a uh, Republican who has national ambitions but comes from a socially liberal area uh, to be pro-choice or to be moderately pro-choice. And it becomes more acceptable for a Democrat with national ambitions or, or even state-wide ambitions um, to be pro-life if that's where his uh, constituents are. And then, you know, so maybe you get a little bit of a revival of a Democratic Party in Alabama, for example. So I was asking, I asked um, our friend and uh, my colleague, David French, about this, and he, 
immediately went to the fact that there's a segment. He doesn't claim it's a majority or anything like that, but there's a segment of sort of evangelicals that are holding on to the Republican Party solely because of the pro-life issue. And um, I don't know how to quantify that. If you have any sense of what those numbers are, it'd be interesting to know. Um, and when I think about this, the people I first think of, and maybe this has to do with the fact that I grew up in New York City and I've lived in Washington, D.C., that there seems to be a non-trivial number of people who vote Republican because Roe v. Wade gives them cover, right? That they um, they don't want to get yelled at at work or at school or in their social circles, but with abortion being legal um, and not a live issue where they live, they can vote on taxes and they can vote on all sorts of other things. Um, and if all of a sudden you gave the issue back to voters, which I think you should, um, then all of a sudden you could see some of of those sort of upscale suburban Republican types um, leaving the Republican party or at least voting more pro uh, on net, more pro-choice because they have pro-choice Republican options to vote. Um, uh, do you think that's right? And also like what happens to the democratic coalition? Cause I mean, I was making this point uh, recently uh, that I think it's very telling that the democratic party in Texas went to, you know, 11 on the voting rights stuff, fleeing the state and getting all this free publicity and, you know, saving democracy on the voting rights bill, but they didn't do anything when the, the, the abortion bill was passed in May. And, um, uh, and my suspicion is that in part, because it doesn't play that the abortion, the voting rights stuff unifies big chunks of the democratic coalition. But in Texas, where the any chance of Democrats being a majority party hinges upon African American and Hispanic voters, and their being absolutist on abortion is not great messaging for them. So, I mean, like, what do you think it does to the Democratic coalition, and what do you think it does for these, re or does it do the things I'm describing about sure. Republicans getting a free pass? So, of course, it differs from place to place and um, and year to year. But the great advantage that pro-lifers have generally had on the politics of abortion has been greater intensity. That the number of vote, if you take the voters who vote based on abortion as one of their top issues, one of their, you know, maybe their top issue or the second most important issue, pro-lifers almost always and almost everywhere outnumber uh, pro-choicers by a significant amount. Um, and in fact, the presidential election exit polls used to ask a question which allowed you to uh, to see that um, pretty regularly. And then for whatever reason, they, they scrapped the question. Um, but I think you can look at the two, 2016 election um, because there, th there was a question about whether the Supreme Court was important to your vote. And I think politically, that's largely a pro-life, pro-choice uh, division. Um, and uh, something like 20% of the public said it was one of their top issues. And they went for Trump over Clinton 58 to 40, um, which is, I think, enough right there to have given Trump the election that, it, you know, if that had, if he hadn't had that going for him, I don't think he would have won. And I think, you know, to his credit, um, he understood that. Uh, and I think people around him like Kellyanne Conway understood that. Uh, and so, you know, as much as people said, 
well, Trump, you know, could do anything. He can remake the Republican Party in his own image. He knew that he needed to stick with pro-lifers and be a, a pretty steadfast ally. So to get back to your uh, to the actual question, yes, um, I, I think that um, because there are there are more people who are kind of economically liberal, but um, but pro-life and voting Republican than there is the kind of anti-matter version of that person. Um, that is why I think from a partisan standpoint in the long run, getting rid of Roe hurts Republicans and helps Democrats, not because um, the position uh, opposition to abortion is so unpopular. It's actually because opposition to abortion has been so successful for right. the Republicans. It's drawn and, and bound these voters to the Republican party um, that, uh, you know, if this issue were kind of, were less polarized, they, they would have less of a reason to stick around. But I mean, that sort of gets in from another angle, the stakes of the, the Dobbs case. If, if a conservative majority of six justices don't deliver as it were, um, what happens to like, let, let's say they come up with this clever thing that finds some right to abortions up to 15 uh, you know, after 15 weeks or whatever, you know, some construct that reconciles with the Dobbs thing. And it is seen basically as a establishment insider punt um, catering to the sort of New York Times crowd. Uh, what does that do to the conservative legal movement? What does that do to the pro-life yeah. cause? Yeah, I think that ele both electorally um, and sort of intellectually, it becomes a huge, huge problem for conservatives. Uh, I think it would be it would be very demoralizing, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of voters who would who say, "We've done all this, we put up with all this, um, and you know, we haven't made any progress on the, you know, even this decision, you know, which is just so flagrantly contrary to the Constitution." Um, because yeah, you know, I mean, I should probably take a step back and just make this point, which I'm, I'm sure a lot of people in your audience are familiar with, but. You know, pro-lifers have particularly deeply internalized the idea that Roe v. Wade just isn't in the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution, its text or its history, its original understanding or its structure, that says there's this gigantic, super-protected abortion right. And a lot of liberal scholars, uh, even people who themselves support legal abortion as a policy matter, have over the years conceded this point or admitted it that that it's just sort of made up um and so i think it's particularly it's not just that pro-lifers care so passionately about the issue it's also that it's just so flagrantly wrong mm -hmm. um to say that you know our convictions on the right to life are sort of ruled out by the constitution um that i think it would be it would be pretty devastating and i think it would raise some questions you know, this conservative legal movement, which has had so much political support from conservatives, um, you know, if it can't actually undo any of the great anti-constitutional liberal victories, um, no matter how unjust, how widely criticized, um, what's the point of it? Move on to the metaphysics of this a little bit. Um, I assume... I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I have to assume that you have a well thought out position of what your preferred legal regime about abortion would be. Do you, would you, if you got to write the law, would you be in favor of 
exceptions for rape and incest? So um, I think uh, that one mistake that we make, and it's partly because of the judicialization of these issues, is that we think in terms of what a kind of an ideal legal code Mm -hmm. uh, would be like. Uh, And it seems to me that you can entirely legitimately, as a matter of justice, have different legal regimes in different places under different circumstances. And I'm talking about things like, um, you know, if, if somebody commits an abortion, uh, what's the penalty for that? Um, uh, that may differ based on all kinds of factors. Um, the, the prevalence of this injustice in our, in your community being one of them, um, what it would take to get the kind of consensus you'd need for enforcement. Um, the key thing to me, you know, when Roe goes down, if it goes down, as I hope it will, um, the que- I think a lot of pro-lifers are going to start thinking in terms of what's our ideal legal code. Mm-hmm. And we should instead be thinking in terms of how can we move this system toward greater justice? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I don't think that there is... Uh, maybe any place in the country that will in a sustainable way want to um, ban abortion in the case of rape and incest. And even those places, by the way, that have banned without those exceptions, I think partly it's because it's you're, you're kind of play legislating rather than actually legislating. Um, and people understand it as a kind of symbolic gesture or as a, a a blow against Roe v. Wade, as opposed to, well, this is actually going to be our legal code going forward. Um, and I would be, uh, uh, I would always be for the most protection for unborn children that is feasible. Um, and if I can't, and that, you know, if, if, if I can't get, um, more than third trimester protections in California, I will take that and and go on to fight another day and to get into the second trimester. Okay, so again, partly I'm asking this partly as a devil's advocate because, but partly because I part of my part of part of the thing I I struggle with is the where I find where where the limiting principles are in some pro life um, positions. If you take the, if you take it as a proposition that it is, um, I know you have an objection to saying pr- that abortion is murder, right? But there are a lot of people who believe it is murder. I am certainly open to the idea that it is, um, pretty identifiably through a reasonable person's test, homicide in the third trimester, right? You know, for a viable fetus, and then we can have arguments about where or when it becomes some other category of thing but you know if you take it as a proposition that it is taking of an innocent life um we i mean i understand that different states have slightly different legal standards for for manslaughter and 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 first degree murder and second degree murder and all these kinds of things and and i think part of that reflects some of what you're talking about about you know they're you know, life is complicated and there are certain situations yeah. where, I mean, like the, 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 the Chauvin case, you know, where first degree murder just seemed 
you know, indefensible, but, you know, second degree murder and manslaughter, those were certainly debatable propositions. Um, but we don't have in this country, a policy of saying in some States, it's okay that they get away with legalizing this kind of homicide and it's not okay in these States. And is, is your argument from justice? Cause I, I didn't think you're going to use the word justice when you're saying we talk too much about legal regimes because it seems to me legal regimes are the things you use or the tools you use to get closer and closer to justice. I thought you were going to talk about changing the culture of life and, and, and that kind of stuff. But if, if, what is it? I mean, it can't purely be a federalism argument, is it? That you're willing to countenance yeah. the taking of a life across one uh, one side of a state line and not on the other. So um, there, I would uh, let me put this: there would be nothing unjust about a fe- the federal government stepping in uh, and and saying, you know, you are you know, California is denying civil rights to a class of people. Uh, unborn children. Uh, and, um, you know, we're going to, you know, there are various remedies that we can um, pursue for that. Um, and I, I think as a practical matter, um, you're not going to be able to do a whole lot in that regard. Um, and that, you know, all that, all the stuff you're saying about changing the culture actually is important um, in, in building an effective legal regime. Um, but, uh, but I think you could say something like, look, if, uh, in your state, uh, a regime that says, um, if you commit an abortion, you lose your medical license. Uh, and then if you, and if you commit one without having a medical license, you have a steep fine. If that is enough to discourage it, uh, and to communicate the government's and the public's hostility, um, to this injustice, um, it seems to me that there's no reason you don't have to go further than that for the sake of justice. But there are sort of, you know, there's kind of a set of empirical questions that then come into play. You know, is this working? Um, is, is, is abortion, um, has it become so uncommon uh, and so universally regarded as monstrous um, that you can have a very stiff penalty um, as a way of guarding that hard-won consensus, um, that that's what I mean when I say that sort of um, uh, you can't sort of deduce what the answer um, is in a way that sort of generates an ideal legal regime. Um, I mean, I mean, you could. I mean, one of the analogies that I always thought had real moral power to it. Um, is the analogy to slavery, right? Which you've heard, you, I mean, you know all this stuff better than I do, but, um, and one of the most powerful arguments to me for the pro-life case is that I don't like the idea of the, the federal government or the government, the state, whatever you want to call it, deciding who is and who isn't a human being. And if within real, you can't name it, say a mailbox is a human being, but you know, um, you know, within the bounds of reason and rightly formed conscience. And, um, and when the state has to be in that business, um, cause there's sometimes it's going to have to be in that business. Um, uh, it should err on the side 
of protecting life, of drawing the definition as widely as possible so as to not be in the position of taking life unjustly, right? And so to me as an intellectual Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's like when you're talking about end of life, for example, you know, the question of sort of what's a living human organism. Um, right. There are some, um, some tough boundary cases. Um, you know, what if, uh, you know, should it be whole brain death? What should be the criteria? Should it be the heartbeat? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And there, I think that's exactly right. You want to err on the side of, uh, of a more inclusive standard. Yeah. Although, I mean, again, on the, on the end of life stuff, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm much more in your camp about having a high tolerance for ambiguity on these kinds of things, because the hard cases are definitely going to make for bad law about, you know, the end of life stuff. And as someone who had to quite literally pull the plug on his own brother, um, like that was the very difficult thing to do. It was the right thing to do, but it was a very, very difficult thing to do. And having intrusions of law into most of those cases is probably a bad idea, except in those cases where it is so egregious that some whistleblower says, Hey, this is not what's supposed to be happening here. And, um, and so I get, I guess I get the point about having a high tolerance for flexibility on, on the regime of justice stuff about a lot of these things. But I guess, I guess what I'm groping towards is part of the, part of the crime that is Roe, it seems to me, is how it has radicalized a large number of people on both sides of these questions. Um, uh, you know, if you had said 50 years ago to, um, or 48 years ago to the court, um, you know, in the span of one generation, you're literally going to have legislature legislators in Virginia talking about how to kill babies after they're delivered. Um, because of this decision, they, and if you could persuade them, that was the case, they go, all right, we got to rethink this. But now the, the pro choice, the abortion rights left a big chunk of them, um, in terms of the influencers believe some really radical things about mm -hmm. the nature of abortion and what a, you know, an abortion rights. I mean, Barbara Boxer was a slip of the tongue, I think, but it got at a kind of fundamental truth about one side of this argument, which she said, it becomes a baby when you bring it home from the hospital. Right. That's, that, that's a bad construct right i mean that's just an evil construct and similarly i don't think it's comparative i don't think it's symmetrically evil or bad and some of the pro-life extremism but there's some pro i mean there are people who shoot up abortion clinics you know i mean there are and there are people who one of the things i fear about getting rid of roe and i agree with you that roe should go i mean i honestly and sincerely do but one of the things i would fear about a post-roe universe is you would have some of the people who've been claiming to be federalists for the last 50 years all of a sudden turn into statists and centralists and, and nationalists and say, okay, now we need a nationwide regime to do what they did, but just in the other direction. And part of the reason why Roe is so bad is it radicalized people to make that a fairly widespread point of view. I mean, am I wrong about that? Am I missing something? Well, I, I certainly think that framing this issue, sort of having a judicial takeover of this issue and a kind of pretend constitutionalization of the issue um, 
made it harder to compromise, harder to find a compromise because everything becomes a question of high principle. And you get situations like what were state Senator Barack Obama in Illinois, who is being asked to uh, vote on this bill that simply says um, a, a fully delivered um, baby uh, that has survived an attempted abortion should get legal protection. You shouldn't be allowed to kill it, uh, and you shouldn't be allowed to neglect it. You should give it the same care that you'd give a, an equivalent um, child if abortion wasn't in the picture. And he says, wait a second, is this really consistent with Roe? Um, <laughs> and, you know, I mean, and, and there's been, there was all this stuff when he ran for in 08, and even again when he ran in 12, it was sort of obfuscated what he had said and why he'd said it, but he was actually crystal clear. Mm-hmm. on why he said that, where he's basically saying this is this just does not seem to be compatible with the principle of Roe v. Wade. And that's, I think, not the kind of, of political culture you would have had develop around this issue if it hadn't been judicialized. And it's not the political culture that they have in Europe, you know, which is certainly not a pro- pro-life utopia by any means, but but which is not dominated by this kind of absolutist rights talk. But to get to the one other part of what you were saying, sort of the federalism versus national mm-hmm. centralization, there I think you've largely got prudential questions. Um, and that, you know, as I said, I think that there, there, there are practical reasons um, to have uh, local and state variation in policies. But again, I don't think it's, it would be unjust uh, for the federal government to intervene any more than that it was unjust for the federal government to intervene on a whole range of other civil rights issues as it has done over the last 50 to 60 years. Um, so, uh, I'm just, so, I mean, on this nationalization question, um, like the right to life, I mean, I mean, put it this way, it seems to me there is a more of a textual support for protecting fetuses in the constitution, you know, I think you even said it, um, that, that the, um, the constitution is silent on these things. Right. Um, uh, but there's, there's a better case that it implies, um, protection for unborn children, right? Because the 14th amendment says states cannot deny, the equal protection of the laws right. uh, to any persons, uh, and if you believe that unborn children are persons, and you know, and I think we should have a, we should basically regard any living organism of the human species as a person, uh, then unborn children certainly count. Uh, and if you deny them the elementary protection of the uh, homicide laws, then you are not giving them equal protection. So yeah, I do think that that is that is right. But you notice though that the. Um, the uh, well, maybe you won't notice. A lot of people don't notice, but um, the end of the Fourteenth Amendment says, you know, basically it's up to Congress to enforce this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I suspect that's partly because it would be kind of weird for uh, people who had just fought an extremely bloody civil war, brought on in no small part by the Supreme Court, to turn around and like just give the federal judiciary an immense amount of new power. Um, but it's also, I think, it, it creates room for sort of prudential judgment, practical compromise, politics. Um, that uh, you know, just giving it over to the judiciary doesn't allow. Mm-hmm. All right, fair enough. Um, 
we went longer on this than 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 I thought of. I thought I was going to, but um, I find it intriguing. And I, I, at some point, I'll I'll have you back and do an acid test my various conflicting views and opinions about about the the issue. But um, um, we can put a pin in that. Oddly, the other thing that you are fairly expert on you're an you're expert on many things um for listeners who don't know basically like uh ramesh has essentially been the there there are a lot of very smart people at nr but ramesh has essentially been nr's brain for a very long time which is fitting because i think he's a vulcan and um there is that episode called spock's brain but we can leave that as it may um one of the other things that you are you're sort of I'll have to demonstrate the nerve pinch the next time we get together. <laughs> um one of the things that you're you're fairly obsessively interested in is inflation stuff. And um um and I remember my first shock when you started writing about it for NR in earnest and there were all of these squiggly lines and I felt betrayed <laughs> because I was told that if I picked this career there'd be no math. Um but uh we had Dave Bonson on here. Um, um, I know you guys have gone around and around a little bit on the inflation stuff. Where, where do you come around, come, come down on all of this? Are we in danger of inflation? Is the inflation that we are seeing? And I do think you, there, there, there are inflated prices around it, right, right now, but are they, is the inflation we are seeing, is that the product of getting supply chains back up and running during COVID or is there some other thing going on? Um, what is your general take? And then I'll, I'll, I'll have follow up on it. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's, that's, uh, your earlier remarks are very kind, but, uh, one of the great things about NR, of course, I've been being able to surround myself with, uh, with great brains and, uh, and great people. Um, on the inflation question, I think that it's a mixed picture. Um, I think, you know, so, so when people say, should we be concerned about inflation? Well, Yeah. Um, a supply-driven inflation, it's sort of all loss, right? I mean, you don't want to have supply shortages. Um, it, it's it's just a loss of income. It's a loss of material welfare. Um, uh, and you need those worked out. Now, some of those things should work themselves out because of the price system, right? I mean, if the price of something, you know, the price of a, of a semiconductor um, goes up because there's a shortage, um, then presumably people start moving their production into that and, uh, and people start buying fewer of it and then, you know, supply meets demand, uh, again, um, and you don't have that shortage. Uh, I think that is, a, that, that is most of what we have seen. Um, and then plus there's a little bit of a kind of, uh, what they call a base effect that, that 2020 during the, the, the hard, harder lockdown months was such a depressed economy that numbers look kind of big right now because you're comparing against that artificially depressed baseline. Mm-hmm. But I also think that there are some, there's some monetary policy factors um, that are at play here that the, the federal reserve has loosened money. I, I think it is a kind of close question right now, whether it has uh, loosened too much. I think if it's loosened too much, it's only loosened a little bit too much. Uh, and most of what we're seeing is just uh, is just the transitory um, supply-driven inflation. If you look at um, uh, market indicators of inflation um, for the next few years, you wouldn't want to see those 
um, spiking or becoming um, uh, either moving too high or becoming too erratic. And they're really not. If you look at um, either what they what they imply about market expectations of inflation for the next five years or the five years after that, um, they have risen, but they're you know they're they're on the, like so the next five years. The last reading was like something like two point four percent average what, inflation. What, what, for the benefit of not not your yeah. host who understands all of this, but for the well, of course for the for the the, the the listeners out there, what are these indicators? So um, you look at the the difference in yields between Treasury bonds that are indexed for inflation and the treasury bonds that are not indexed for inflation. And um, that difference uh, yields, so to speak, an implied uh, market prediction of what inflation is going to look like. Um, because if you, know, if, if you think it's off, there, there's an arbitrage opportunity mm-hmm. um, there. Um, there are some complications with it having to do with the liquidity of the different markets, but that's the basic theory. And, wh- and that is not... Um, uh, that, that's actually... So, uh, like Friday's reading was um, five. The next five years, the implicit market indicator indication is for two point four eight percent annual average inflation, and that's using the consumer price index. If uh, so, what the Fed targets is two percent inflation using a different indicator, the personal consumption expenditure indicator, because nothing can be simple. And uh, that typically runs a little bit lower. And basically what that market prediction is telling you is um, it's right in line with, um, with the Fed's target of 2% inflation. Now, it could be wrong, right? Um, but it's one of several signs that um, Federal Reserve policy might be a little too loose or a little too tight, um, but it is not wildly off. And there, I think a lot of, of conservatives, a lot of my fellow conservatives, are just thinking about these things um, in the wrong way, right? They're thinking if you've got a really low interest rate, that's that's a, a dangerously loose, too accommodative monetary policy, um, and that's I think the kind of that, that's just a mis- that's a mistake. I mean, we had very low interest rates in the Great Depression. We did not have loose monetary policy. Um, it's a, it's a question of what you think the kind of the neutral interest rate is. So. Again, I hate monetary policy. I mean, I really, really do. Um, but um, you know, the the stuff I look at, I, I'm much more like a normal person on this kind of thing. I, I, wow, look, gas prices are really high. Um, uh, the prices for meat in supermarkets have been very high and getting higher for a long time. Notice that these are things I I purchase meat and gas um and uh booze prices some of that has to do with tariffs that were put in you know that it inflated which is one of the reasons i'm a free trader when it comes to brown liquor but um i guess the 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 thing i'm wondering about is lots of things are gradual until they're sudden right i mean like the lead up to the civil war was very gradual and then it was really sudden um that guy in fletch that uh that you know who who died really suddenly and the doctor is like he lingered for six months and and jeff jay's like no but at the end it was really sudden um and it seems to me Isn't that Hemingway said say something about bankruptcy being like that at first yeah that's right that's right. That, yeah, yeah yeah and then and so and this is my concern about i mean about 
a lot of things having to do with debt and deficit spending and, and, and all the rest. But when it comes to inflation, you can get inflation in part just because people think there's inflation. Right? Yeah. You, you, right. You, right. So expectations. Um, so, you know, if, if you're, if you think that the, there's going to be hyperinflation and that tomorrow everything's going to be twice as expensive, you're going to go spend that money right now. Right. right. And then, uh, and if people, um, it's like a run on a bank for money balances drop. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it can be self-reinforcing. Although those things take longer to change than, 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 uh, than we sometimes remember. I think there's a kind of folk history of the 1970s inflation, which really was, you know, really did have an erratic and loose monetary policy at that time. And we really did have inflation that was out of control, but that actually came on kind of gradually and expectations were pretty slow to adjust. Um, those first couple of years, uh, but by the late seventies, of course, it had gotten completely out of hand. So, AOC and crowd want a Federal Reserve chairman who's committed to social justice and climate change and whatnot. And you know, AOC has never really repudiated the kind of modern monetary theory stuff and the tr- two trillion dollar coin kind of stuff. And, um. And, you know, if you'd asked me two months ago, I, if Biden would ever accede to that kind of stuff from the left, I would have said probably not. Now, post Afghanistan and the mess and the bind he finds himself into, I'm less convinced of that. I mean, is it possible that we that through just some political act, we send a signal that says that tells people, holy crap, the wheels are coming off the bus on 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 monetary policy, on inflation and all that? Or is the system resilient enough that it, that wouldn't be that much of a problem. I think it would be pretty obviously a mistake um, to replace Powell. And I've got to think that there are plenty of Democrats who understand it. Um, the left wing argument for replacing him keeps morphing. Um, just a month ago, you really weren't hearing a lot about the climate change um, policy question being a good reason to have a new Federal Reserve uh, chairman. And by the way, there's not a whole lot the Federal Reserve can do about climate change. I mean, even if you think government can do a lot, most of what you'd want done would not be done by the Federal Reserve. Um, It was financial regulation that people were talking about. And that made a little bit more sense because financial regulation is in fact part of the Fed's portfolio. But it doesn't make a ton of sense even then because there are lots of other parts of the government that are involved in financial regulation, whereas nobody is as important for monetary policy. Um, and uh, I think for a lot of reasons, replacing Powell would be a mistake. And partly, I think what was, part of what's going on is that um, Democrats just want one of their own people. And Powell was a Trump appointee. Right. And I, you know, if you think back even, even further, um, We've had a lot of periods in the last 50 years of Democratic presidents reappointing Republican-picked Federal Reserve chairs, and we don't have um, a ton of experience um, the other way around. I guess Volcker being the great exception, but more recently, Yellen was uh, was was kicked out for no particularly great reason uh, and replaced um, by Powell uh, under President Trump. And so I guess I can understand if you're on the left saying we want our own person, but this seems like a particularly bad time to do it. 
um, you know, like if I'm right and if like-minded people are right that we have this kind of transitional inflation that is going to subside, it seems like the worst possible moment to come up with a new um, chairman who might not be committed to existing policy is the worst possible moment if you want to keep expectations of what monetary policy and what inflation are going to be anchored. Um, and, uh, and, and the fact that he's a Republican is actually a little bit of a plus for Biden in terms of uh, either Hill relations between the Federal Reserve um, and members of Congress, and just in terms of uh, of, of having a the, the tiny tiny cushion of blame that uh, that you yeah. can uh, um, have if you've got a Republican appointee there. Yeah, I, I guess I, I guess what I'm getting to is is that again, I'm pretty consistent on this. I don't know how monetary policy works with any. I mean, I can explain it to my daughter for the purposes of high school or college class, but. Um, when it gets into the higher level debates among people I trust and respect, I just go agnostic on it. But the one thing I'm pretty sure about is that a society that no longer cares about inflation will eventually be more likely to get inflation. And when I listen to the way Democrats talk about this stuff, and when I listen to the way Republicans talked under Trump, um, actual concern with the math that you focus on seemed like a secondary or tertiary concern and you know like my, the, the my spider sense tingled when i saw that thing from aoc just this week i saw someone did a screen capture of something that rick perlstein had written where he's he's now making oh yeah case. i saw that yeah for the listeners who didn't nobody was really concerned about inflation in the 70s it was all right. because they were panicked about the sexual revolution and and yeah. civil rights movement yeah that's insane right so inflation I mean, was I, in I, fact I, another racist yeah. and sexist code term right. for you know uh too much democracy and too much freedom for oppressed minorities and stuff and i'm pretty sure that's not what inf- what bothered people about inflation in the 1970s right i mean it may have fed yeah. that other moral panic stuff about that stuff because why wouldn't it but like yeah, well, rising prices a, were a I real concern. A, there was definitely a sense that that a lot of things were out of control, um, right? <laughs> at that time, as in, in fact they were. Um, but yeah, no, it obviously. I mean, not only that, but like people. It's funny because because this is a problem that we solved um, to in large degree. But people forget that in the late seventies and early eighties, um, if you had double digit inflation, and we did that three years in a row, yeah, you would get kicked into a higher tax bracket. Um, even when you were not even treading water, but you were actually falling falling behind, you were sinking, um, just because the the tax brackets were not indexed to inflation. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, and so anyway, my my concern is just simply that um, having I know you'll be shocked by this lost some degree of trust in the competence of of political leaders and institutional leaders, even though I think one of our biggest problems is the loss of faith and trust in institutions. Um, the, the mere, the, the, the mere fact that there's a one that basically both parties have committed to the idea that you can borrow enormous sums of money, either to pay for new spending or to cover, uh, tax cuts that do not ultimately pay for themselves. And I take you at your word, you know, and I, I take your argument seriously and also uh, David's that 
you know, particularly in the wake of the financial crisis of 10 years ago, um, like there are a lot of reasons to think that the old inflation models don't work, but it sure feels like Herb Stein's law is going to kick in at some point and that which cannot go on forever must eventually stop. And, um, and I just, I don't feel like anybody's ha got a great handle on, on the problems coming down the pike on, on this kind of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that the the the, the recent fiscal record of both parties um, is wildly improved. Um, I don't believe that um, that's going to cause a burst of inflation um, uh, or or really raise the inflation rate uh, to a significant de degree as an average matter over the next 10, 15 years. I just think it's imprudent, right? I mean, it's you owe the money at some point. Um, interest payments are going to be a larger share of your budget. Um, if interest rates go up, then it's an even larger share. Uh, and you're, and I think a lot of that money is also wasted. Um, so I, I mean, I think we can, we can have reasons for being concerned about that record and its long-term implications that are not about, um, the high price of meat right now. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, um, I've kept you longer than I promised I would. And I've always wanted to end a podcast with the guest saying the high price of meat right now. So I think we're going to call it quits right here. <laughs> um, and uh, Ramesh, thank you, Ramesh, thank you for coming on. Um, obviously we want to have you back and, and may your reign be um, as, as, as editor of national review be as fruitful as it will be tyrannical. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, Ramesh has left the studio. Um, I know it's been a, a lot of abortion talk around here for a bit now, but I, I don't know. I just sort of think it's interesting and, um, and been too long since we had um, Ramesh on. And I really do highly recommend that piece for NR, whether, wherever you come down on the specifics of the issue. And I know people come down all over the place. Um, I thought it was, it was very illuminating. Um, if you don't follow this as closely as, as well as Ramesh does. And so uh, with that, I guess that's all I got for you. Uh, thanks for listening. You know, uh, I rarely beg you guys to do the, you know, give us five-star reviews and all that kind of stuff. And I have to admit that sometimes I get very annoyed when I actually look at the, I mean, there are a lot of great reviews over at iTunes, but there are also a lot of jackasses who clearly don't listen to the show. Um, just saying nonsense there, you know, out of spite. Um, one of the, best giveaways is when people say he can't shut up about Trump in response to a show where Trump wasn't even mentioned. Um, but, uh, if you're favorably inclined to give us a good review, that would be great. If you could become a paid member of the dispatch, that would be wonderful. And, um, other than that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, 
even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.